White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 677. We are back at last. We had a little break, Alan, but On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast returns with our Rating the Bond series. I am your host, Van Allen Plexico, joined as always by my co-host for this great series, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. And hey, where the hell's my green Cisheo stamps? I've been winning months for them. <laughs> you got to buy some gas first, lady. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, Charlie, you had your chance. <laughs> I was just about to tell you, Alan, U is for umbrella. We carry it lest it rain. We hope we shan't need it before we're home again. <laughs> I love that so much. I love I love the use of lest and shan't. Those are both good words that aren't used enough in American English uh, by a Dutch lady. So here we are, huh? We're gonna we've we've made it out of the sixties at last. We're into the rock in nineteen seventies. What do you think? Yeah, it's very definitely a 70s evening uh, <laughs> or a 70s movie that we'll be good talking about this evening, yes. Yes, yeah. Um, so we're talking about uh, Diamonds Are Forever from 1971. And in this series, just to remind everybody, because it has been a while since we've been able to get together and do this, uh, we've reviewed all of the movies once, just standard review where we went through and discussed the scenes and discussed the plot and the characters and everything. And that is all available in our back catalog here on On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. Uh, now in this new series, we've been going back through them again. And this time we're using a rating system of scale of 1 to 10 for various elements of the movie, in addition to a few other odds and ends that we're doing. Um, and so we've made our way through the 60s, and we are to the last of the Eon Bond movies starring Sean Connery. So maybe give a quick refresher to the folks that maybe don't know how we came to have Sean Connery one more time. Sure. So after George Lazenby in On a Magic Secret Service decided that he was too hip for Bond, and Bond was going to die and didn't have a, a life because he was listening to the wrong advices and quit, um, mm -hmm. they needed... A, a replacement Bond, and um, they went out and test a lot of people, including several American character uh, actors, including uh, Adam West, wow, uh, and several others, and actually cast an American Bond. They cast the American actor John Gavin to portray Bond in the next movie. Um, the distributors, United Artists, at the time were not very impressed by this, and decided that they were going to get Sean Connery back, no matter how much it cost them. And boy, did it cost him um, about 50% of the budget. Um, and he landed the biggest paycheck for a movie lead to that date. I think it was something like $1.25 million or something like that. Um, but give More than the budget of the first Bond movie. Bond movie, yes. Yeah. Um, but he actually took all that money and used it to open a educational, I think it's an educational charity in Scotland. So... Awesome. Kudos to him for that. He didn't actually like put it in his bank account and awesome. You know, because uh, he's Sean he Connery. He's awesome. Yes, he used used it for good. So that that was good. So um, yeah, basically that's how we got Sean Connery back. Was United Artists were, um, but they also ended up actually paying John Gavin his full contracted <laughs> amount to not play James Bond. Um, so uh, he did okay out of the deal, I guess. Other than the fact that nobody remembers him now. Um, so that reminds me. There's a quick story of when. Um, when uh, I guess Brian De Palma was doing The Untouchables, he went to, um, what's his name, the British actor that played the detective in Roger Rabbit. I can't think of his name. Oh, uh, Bob Hoskins. He went to Bob Hoskins and said, I kind of want you to play um, Al Capone. 
But I'm also talking to Robert De Niro and 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 Hoskins is like, oh yeah, well if you can get De Niro, I understand, right? I understand. And he says, yeah. well I'm going to go ahead and you know get you under contract for it, whatever. So he signed a full contract to pay him to play that character, and then they got out, they got um, De Niro, and so. Hoskins said, "I got a couple of months later. I got a check for like a hundred thousand, you know, five hundred thousand dollars, something in the mail." And he says, "I called up De Palma and says, if you have any other parts you don't want me to play, let me know." <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of what happened with Gavin there. I guess that's pretty cool. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But um, so so hence we got Sean Connery and his two payback for for one more one more final uh, Eon produced Bond outing. Yes. I guess this is the only time it, that a Bond goes away and comes back, right? An actor. Yeah. The only time, yeah. And um, yeah, and I was going to say, I would think that he also demanded that Scotland get to host the World Cup maybe as part of his payment. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in Scotland and we'll talk about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the seventh Eon Bond movie, 1971's Diamonds. And uh, we always start out by talking about things that were going on in the world, thanks to Michael Beggar's great suggestion at the very beginning of this series, things that were going on in the world around the time this movie came out. Do you have any that you want to throw out there? I have a little list, my own self. Uh, yeah, this is actually a nice intro. Um, just, I was just explaining to Van just before we hit the record button, I logged in this evening to prep for the, prep for the show, um, opened the wiki that I keep all my page uh, notes on, and my Diamonds of Forever page was there, but there was nothing on it. It was completely blank, so I don't know what happened to all my notes. So everything I'm doing for the rest of the evening, I'm going to do completely from memory. I do have my scores for each category because I keep them on a separate spreadsheet so i still have those i'm just going to hope that jugs my memory enough that we can talk about it so the only thing i re- really remember having on the 1971 list was the fact it was the year that the uk went decimal with their currency yes um, we changed the currency um i think it was around february or i think it was around february time frame i can't remember exactly what month but i do remember that it was very confusing because literally one day we were imperial pound shilling and pence and then the next day we were decimal currency and for a long time everything had two prices on it and also the coins carried two values uh, and then one day it was one value and the next day the same coin had a different value um, and then certain coins could no longer be used because they didn't have a decimal equivalent it was all very confusing but we got through it um, so um, a few that I had um Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard and ended the Bretton Woods Accord. That's kind of an international thing. That's a monetary yeah. thing as well. Uh, Apollo 14 and Apollo 15 were launched. Okay. Um, 14 was the third to go up because, remember, 13 got there, had to turn and come back. Didn't make it, yeah. Um, 15 was the first one where they rode around the, in, the, in the dune buggy, the, the moon buggy. In the moon rover, yeah. How cool yeah. is that? Yeah. Um, Idi Amin took over Uganda. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. And remember all uh, the fallout from that. Yeah. Yeah. The U.S., the U.K., and the USSR, among others, signed the Seabed Treaty outlawing nuclear weapons on the ocean floor, though apparently not laser space satellites controlled right. by an oil rig. So they had to yeah. make an amendment for that for Blofeld. Well, hunting uh, for vibranium. Oh, sorry. It's wrong yeah. <laughs> wrong. Wrong universe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in Belfast, a Led Zeppelin show had the first public performance of Stairway to Heaven. How about really? that? Yeah. Wow. Because Led Zeppelin Four came out in 1971, and that was the first time they played it in public in Belfast. And they're, they're still playing it, yeah? It's still going on, yes. They haven't finished yet. <laughs> They'll be wrapping it up any minute now. They're on the last, yeah, last bar. 
The I think I didn't get all of this, but I was reading the various events that were leading up to this. So I think this happened: the Bangladesh Independence War, and oh, very, okay. very oh, God, simply yeah. was when when yeah. India was part when when India became independent in forty seven. It was partitioned into Pakistan and India, obviously, yeah. but Pakistan was in two pieces: one on each side of the yeah. subcontinent, and the one on the east became Bangladesh in 1971 because they didn't get along too well with the Western Pakistanis. So yeah, that was, was a huge famine and stuff. I guess. And then all, yeah, yeah. The, the basket case of the world pretty much. And then I noted the United Kingdom opted out of the space race by canceling the Black Arrow launch vehicle. I don't know anything about that. Do you know anything about that? Um, not too much, no. Um, I, I sort of have vague memories of it. Um, Actually, most of what I know about it is actually from a Warren Ellis, I think it was Colleen Doran, graphic novel called Orbiter, which was a what if Britain hadn't backed out of the space race at that point and actually gone ahead with it, um, which is a pretty cool graphic novel from many yeah. years ago. Um, but I don't know, amazingly, given my aerospace background and space geek, you know, snow, I actually don't know too much about it. So. Uh, oh, one other thing. Um, Walt Disney World opened in Orlando. Did it? Yeah, okay. I was just down there a couple of years ago. Seems like it was last summer, but must have been a couple of years ago. But yeah, so um, yeah, I think that's pretty much. There's a lot of Vietnam stuff going on, but that's yeah. obviously um, an RAF C-130 crashes in Italy. Uh, Pink Floyd released Metal. Oman got independence my, from the my UK. favorite Pink Floyd album. Is it really Metal? Really. Yeah. yeah, awesome. And I love uh, echoes. I can listen to echoes for hours. Oh, okay. And uh, and the world's largest hydroelectric plant, which may or may not be the one that Pierce Brosnan's Bond jumped off of <laughs> in Goldeneye, <laughs> begins operations. And then uh, and the longest game in NFL history between the Dolphins and the Chiefs. Um, that couldn't be right. That doesn't make sense. I disagree with that. Okay, well, there you go. So there's what was going on in 1971. Now, um, let's talk about Diamonds Are Forever, and we'll get into our categories in a minute. But but uh, how would you describe... We usually talk about the plot. We, we, we rate the plot. It's been a while since we've done this. We rate the plot. We describe we usually the plot. Rate how we, no, we usually talk about how we where the movie fits in our personal rankings, and then, okay. yeah, we get into rank, uh, ranking, uh, talking about the plot and rating stuff from there. So Yeah, well... All right, so this is the movie that... General gives, thoughts, yeah. Yeah, this gives us... I, what's interesting to me is this movie hits me at several different levels. It's the movie I probably saw the most as a kid because when I was little, when I was really little in the early 70s, it had, it had come out in 71, and ABC Sunday Night the Movies had it on heavy rotation. It was like every third Sunday they showed this or um, Live and Let Die. You know, between seventy one mm-hmm. and seventy three, they'd show those two movies like every other week. It seemed like it was basically Sunday Bond at the movies, and um, so every Sunday night at my house, we would sit down and watch the Bond movie, and it would be this pretty much the same movie. But it was just such a great movie to be shown in prime time on ABC because it has a lot of scenic. You know, it's got Vegas in it, and then it's got, like, out in the ocean with the drill platform and everything. If you're not a Bond expert and you're just watching this movie casually, it grabs you. You know what I mean? It's, it's got Connery. It's got a cute redhead in a bikini running around. In other words, we're kind of jaded Bond 
experts or fans or whatever. And so we look at this movie and we kind of see, oh, it doesn't measure up to some of the other standards. And that's, you know, that's fair enough. But if you're just, you know, Joe and Lisa Smith in Kansas watching ABC one night, this is awesome. You know, this is a great, great thing. And that was me back in Alabama in 1970, 71, 72, 73, right in there, watching those early, the first, probably the first Bond movies I ever saw. So I didn't know anything about Sean Connery having done other movies before this. I didn't know anything about Lazenby. I didn't know any of that. I just knew that James Bond was, you know, going up against this cool Blofeld guy with the cat, and it was great. And so from that nostalgia way, I love it, right? Um, but then um, it, do, it is one that clearly they edited some stuff out that we've talked about before that makes it a little more confusing. It's not quite as completely disjointed as You Only Live Twice, but it has its issues in terms of editing and story that just have never really been fully straightened out. It's just got some odd things in it. It's just got some issues. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's also... It's also, and again, if you didn't know the bigger picture, you would never get this, and I didn't. But it's a movie, in fact, I think, I think that when ABC used to show it, they wouldn't show the opening segment. They would just start it with the credits. I don't think I saw the mud battle thing with Blofeld at the beginning until I saw it on DVD. I don't think I'd ever really? seen that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I think they ABC just lopped that off to put more commercials in and just started it with the very beginning. But um that was supposed to be kind of a tip of the hat to Bond wanting to get revenge well, for Tracy. That. Yeah, but I don't. I think that's what that's what I always used to think. But somebody said something the other week that made me think about it in a completely different light. Interesting. So we'll talk about that when we get to the pre-credit sequence. Good. Okay. Yeah. And then and then lastly, I guess it's just um, it's a very early '70s movie, and it just seemed like all the Bond movies made in the early '70s just seemed kind of cheaper. They just seem a little grainier, a little grittier. A little, they're not as slick. Like the 60s movies seem slicker to me, and then the one starting with The Spy Who Loved Me seems slicker. But it, it, that, that graininess kind of worked with, for me with Live and Let Die. But on this one and on um, The Man with the Golden Gun, they just seem almost like made-for-TV movies in a way somehow. They just don't seem like the money is up there on the screen, except for the Ken Adam design stuff, which is always spectacular. All right, that's my thoughts on the on the plot. What am I leaving out, and what, what would you, how would you like to address that? Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the made-for-TV and the fact that you first encountered it on TV, because I think from a TV thing, especially when we only had small screens and stuff, it is comes across as sort of glamorous and glitzy, but when you see it on the big screen, it doesn't quite translate, I think. Um, this is my least favorite of the, sh- the Conneries by a long way. This is sort of like 19th on my overall list of 20, 25, excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this was the second one I saw in the movie theater. Um, you know, like I said, my first one was Majesty's. I went to see this one when it opened. Um, I fell in love with the Mustang. That was about the only thing I could ever remember about this movie for a long time was that red Mustang. Um, so... Um, even as a, a, there was a kid, there was bits of it that were like, what? That makes no sense. Um, so, yeah, it's always been, I mean, I'll sit and watch it. Um, you know, when I was in Vegas, I went and checked out, you know, some of the locations and stuff and had fun around that. But it's it's not it's not one I will think, oh, I want to watch a Bond movie tonight. I'll watch that one. If it comes on, I'll sit and watch it. But it's not one I'll seek out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. For and sure. I can't say I've only got any particular nostalgia 
attached to it either. But but I think you're right. I think in the UK it was one of the ones that was on heavy TV rotation too. Cool. Yeah, and I know what you mean. I mean, it, 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 I think it is a movie that I would like a lot less if it hadn't been a big part of my childhood, you know. But it, it was like the Bond movie of my little kid Bond fanness. So it just, you know. Yeah, I um, can see that. Yeah. So, all right. We used to talk about unanswered questions. And I mean, for me, the unanswered question in this movie, some of them are answered by like deleted scenes. And we've seen them. And we kind of know, right? I mean, the big one is why does Plenty O'Toole end up in the swimming pool dead? And that they, I mean, do they leave enough in the movie without the deleted scenes for that to make sense? I'm not sure at this point. I mean, they sort of explain why she's dead because she was looking for you, is what he says, but. Yeah, she was looking for you. She was mistaken for you. But what they don't address is why she was there in the first place. Exactly. When there's seemingly no connection between her and and, uh, and Tiffany Case, which, yes, is answered in the deleted scene of basically her getting out of the pool, going back into the hotel, rummaging through Tiffany's handbag, finding her address and stuff, and then wanting to go to remonstrate with Tiffany later on and then getting caught at the house. Um, so, yeah, the, that whole bit is missing. Um, there are other things, you know, like... How does later on Tiffany know who Blofeld is when she's never actually crossed paths with him? But there's there's whole things like that that just make no sense in the narrative where either things have been jumped left out, we're in the script and it get filmed or got filmed and like got cut. Um, that you suddenly like how does person A know about this situation because nothing in the movie so far has set that up. So yeah, there's there's quite a bit of that going on. Well, and it's it. It's it's there's some places that would be unanswered questions, but they really push it on giving you a semi plausible reason. Like for example, they figure out Blofeld is on the oil platform because Bond is alone in the room with Willard White. Bond is alone in the room with Willard White because Willard White has to go to the bathroom while everybody leaves. So, yeah. implausible number one, in the middle of the whole conversation, <laughs> Willard White goes to the bathroom to take a phone call, comes back out, everybody is gone, he sits down on the couch, and Bond goes, they could be anywhere from here to here, <clears throat> from here to here, yeah. from here to Baja, California. Baja. Baja, California? I ain't got nothing in Baja, California. Well, that doesn't mean that's where Blofeld is, but they kind of like say, oh, if, ba- if Baja, California is on here and you don't already own it, then that has to be where Blofeld I'm like... How does that follow? Um, Blofeld, this this criminal genius, decides to put a model of his secret base on the map in the office. <laughs> what kind of like, secret didn't he get? You know? what, why, why does he add a new location? Yeah, exactly. Why not just have it at one of the existing locations? Or and if why, you have a new location, don't put it on the don't map. Don't put it on the map. <laughs> And why does it being on the map indicate that that's the right location? I mean, it's, again, uh-huh. it's like they, they try to answer our unanswered questions, and but their answers are like, that's what you guys came up with, really? I mean, it's another one of those movies, like You Only Live Twice, that what you get is fun, but, man, it's, it's a mile wide and a millimeter deep, and if you scratch the surface in the wrong place, it's like, ooh, you know. And there's, there's several moments like that through it where, you know, where you're kind of like... And you know, the funny thing, too, is you start getting this when they get away from the Ian Fleming material. The further away from the Ian Fleming material they get, the more they make stuff up. And the more they make wild stuff up, the the more implausible it is, right? Because his stuff was granted in reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing with this movie is the original plot was completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So when they decided that we they were basically going to forget about Honor Majesties and go back to the old formula, and it was like, well, let's try and do Goldfinger. And they were going to do it to the extent that the original villain was actually going to be Gert Froh playing Goldfinger's twin brother. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and there was going to be a big um, final Silver scene toe. in the desert, and it was all, yeah... And then it was like, well, we can't do that. So it got hastily rewritten. The plot was completely redone. Yeah. Um, for the non-Fleming bits. So, you know, yeah. one of the things I usually score is, you know, let's have a look at it from a Fleming point of view. Yes, the, uh, you know, the, the idea of the diamond chain and somebody closing down the diamond chain by killing people at, as the last delivery goes through it, that's from the book. Um, some of the characters are from the book. Tiffany Case is in the book. You know, Winton Kidd are in the book. Oh, yeah. um, Shady Tree's in the book. Mm-hmm. Um you know, a lot of the action does take place in Las Vegas. That's that's in the book. But that's pretty much about it. Everything else, the la- space lasers, yeah. the oil fell, the oil rig, that's all just pulled out of nowhere. So, that all yeah. feels like, let's yeah. make it You Only Live Twice meets, you know, meets yeah. a Bond, you know, re- kind yeah. of remake in a way. They That's the one they keep remaking over and over in the 70s and 80s, so. yeah. So, so overall, I gave this like a, a four out of ten. So, um, for the for the plot, I'll say this: I'm going to give it a five, but that's mainly just because I think we're so jaded now. But in the early '70s, an orbital laser cannon made out of diamonds was an awesome freaking idea, and I don't want to judge it too much today on how we are today as opposed to back then. So, looking at it a little bit from how it how it originally hit it was pretty awesome i remember as a kid thinking whoa that's awesome a laser cannon in space on a, that's so blowing up satellites and stuff <laughs> i mean blowing up missiles and stuff that was really cool so and and the the screaming chinese soldiers like <laughs> there's a lot of reactions by the way in this movie that are like unanswered questions to be honest like um like uh tiffany's reaction over and over as an unanswered question <laughs> yeah. She makes some reactions like, "Yeah," <laughs> I'm just like, "Whoa, what was that, Tiffany?" Jill St. So anyway, all right. Do we have any other answered questions? I don't think there's a lot of. I think there's whole. This whole movie is kind of an unanswered question in some I think ways. The whole movie's an unanswered question. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Why? Yes. Why did they? Why would you pay all the money to bring Sean Connery back and then give him some of the things that happened in this movie? You know, I mean, again, it's a fun little romp. It's cute. I don't want to be harsh on it. It's fun. But it's pretty dumb. Yeah. It's cute but dumb. Much like Tiffany Case. (laughs) (laughs) So she's perfect for this movie, right? She kind of like, she embodies this movie in some ways, you know. So, all right. um, The locations. What do you think? I mean, I'm torn on the locations of this movie. Um, I like the sort of little South Africa travel. I know it wasn't filmed in South Africa, but I like the South African travelogue stuff. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I love the contradiction of the them explaining them how tight the security is of the mine contradicted with the footage of the guys actually smuggling the diamonds out and then following uh, you know i thought that was that's not really a location thing but i, I like that um amsterdam um i love amsterdam it's a great place it's great to see it in the bond movie i think they i wish they'd done more there actually mm-hmm. it is such yeah. a good location yeah um but yeah it's very vegas and then we got the the oil rig at the end which is pretty mad so you know most of it is 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 around vegas i must admit you know as a what i've been 12 year old kid in rainy northern 
Manchester in the raining Manchester in the north of England, twelve <laughs> year old sitting in the cinema. Vegas looked like wow, you know. Um, little did I know how sleazy and corrupt and everything else it was. <laughs> it was just like whoa. Um, but it doesn't. But it's a very. It's an interesting. I find it a very interesting travelogue because having been to Vegas quite regularly now, mainly on business, um, doing conferences and things, it's interesting to see how that Vegas looked back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so I found you, I sort of find that travelogue aspect, historical travelogue aspect of it, quite interesting. But as a setting for a Bond movie, no, it doesn't really work. So, uh, I, again, I I think if you're going to do it, you had to do it as in the book where it, it was Bond in Vegas against the mob, not Bond in Vegas against Howard Hughes or somebody pretending to be Howard Hughes or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I gave it a four in terms of locations. <coughs> Several things about it. I think you needed. A Bond movie set in Vegas. We've done Miami. I guess they're doing all the future Formula One locations. You haven't done Austin. <laughs> he never went to Austin, but there's still time. Well, well no, he has in the, one of the books. Oh, really? Yeah, I did, one of the I Raymond did. Benson books. Wow. Uh, oh, in the Raymond Benson books. Okay. Facts of Death, he's been in Austin, yeah. Uh, okay. So. All right. So there you go. But, but yeah, I mean, Miami and Vegas back then were pretty iconic, right? I mean, that was those were probably two locations that people from Europe and other places wanted to go if they came to the United States. And so that's what they're yeah. going to show them, and that's good. Um, it, it stands out for me, too, those two locations, because I've written the first two books in, our, in, the, right. in the Heist series are set in that time period in those two cities. And I loved <clears throat> trying to spot the Mint, right, which yeah. is the hotel, that, the, the casino that's in my book. And I think that the I think the White House was basically Caesar's Palace. It looked like it anyway. I think that's what they oh, I were. I thought it was the Hilton or whatever it was, and then they CG did a, like a map painting to add the extra floors, didn't they? Oh, okay, maybe. Yeah, it, they, yeah, they decided, it, but that was kind of the layout of Caesar's Palace, though. But but anyway, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I stayed at the Nugget last time I was there too. So ah. I was like, oh, I, you know, I, there you Fremont go. Street, the Nugget. Oh, yeah. Fremont, yeah, I, yeah, I wrote. <laughs> I've never been there, but I've certainly visited plenty on uh, Google Maps and on uh, and in a lot of research that I did for that book. But uh, that's the thing, though, is you put Bond in Vegas now, and I feel like it could be anywhere because every place looks kind of the same now. Everything is big, high tech, you know. Mm-hmm. But you sent him there back then, and it was still kind of seedy. And I think that's part of what I was talking about earlier is that <clears throat> you know so much of this movie seems kind of gritty and seedy and not really glossy and slick like Bond usually is, I think, because, like you said, Vegas is, in that era was just not a place that was a great spot for Bond in terms of the things that he's good at and does. So I think I think we're kind of on the same wavelength there. Um, but so, yeah, I that was the only... I did think South Africa was a good idea, They just and, and the Netherlands both. They just didn't do anything with them. And so the only place we really saw was Vegas... And Vegas is neat, but for a Bond movie, it was, yeah. so um, yeah, I, I gave it a four for locations. It was not a really, not a really standout one. I, it's one of those that kind of checked off a couple of boxes. He needs to go to Vegas, you know. But once he's there, you're yeah. Like, I mean, it was Vegas in the book, and I guess it made it cheaper because they could film there and yeah. probably got great kickbacks and. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> I'm surprised you know, that Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin didn't pop up in the middle of the movie. Honestly. Well, um, that that was another cut scene, wasn't it? With Sammy Davis Jr. was meant to be in the movie. Oh, which is why you see Bond when he's flicking through the magazine, you see an ad for Sammy Davis Jr.'s performance, but he never actually appears in the movie. But he was meant to be in the movie. So, well, there you go. Yeah, so they we're going to get a Rat Pack in, Rat Pack uh, in there some somewhere. way. Yeah. 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 
That's interesting. I'd forgotten all about that. All right. So locations we weren't that impressed with either. That's that's too bad. Um, all right. Main villains. I suspect we're going to disagree here, but again, it's because I think so, of so based on other previous conversations. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, go ahead. Charles Gray. I think he's a great actor. Loved him in You Only Live Twice. Mm-hmm. I sort of see what he was trying to do here with a more genti- gentlemanly Blofeld, mm-hmm. but zero menace. Just comes across as a administ- an administrator and not a particularly good one either. Um, <laughs> I-, I-, I liked his calm thing of, you know, well, it's just an ele- you get in it, it's just an elevator, Mr. Bond, or, you know, you can go. Um, yeah. um, so, um, you know, I-, I-, I sort of understood what he was trying to do. Um, and I think like a lot of the movie, it's, it's set up reasonably well and then just goes completely off the rails at the end. And his character is, you know, he's meant to be this great philanthropist to the other folks. And then he does a, a switch from a philanthropist to I'm going to destroy a city. But there's no real changing character or anything. I mean, the dialogue is very one note, very low key. Um, yeah, just no menace to him whatsoever. So. Um, as much as I like Charles Gray as an actor, I just gave it a two. Um, I think I would have said he was the the worst of the Blofelds, but we've got that one to come. Um, but ah, <laughs> he's he's not menacing like Savalas or freakishly weird yet interesting yeah, like, and compelling like Pleasance. Like Pleasance. Yeah. He's just kind of there. Okay, he's I just get that. yeah. I got, before I say this, I got you. You mentioned the elevator, and I've got to say this. All right. He basically tells him, push the L button, like lobby, lobby right? Yeah. Or I'm going to shoot you, basically. He says that, you know? I mean, he doesn't say uh-huh. it, but it's it's obvious he's saying, push the L button. That's your only option right here. And yeah. I'm like, if you're going to make him push that button, knowing it probably does something bad, I wish Blofeld had just had a button on the elevator that said knockout gas. <laughs> and he said, push the knockout gas button, Mr. Bond. Go ahead. I mean, because if you, you know what I mean? Just be honest about it. Let's just be up front. Uh-huh. Just have a uh-huh. gas me now button and push that. Uh-huh. All right. What I do love about that scene is that Bond immediately assumes that the floor's going to blow. Go he does. Pushes his... And the thing is, that's the gag they'd end up using in the Roger Moore um, Spy Love. <laughs> um, yeah. I avoids the trap by doing exactly the same thing. So I, every, I've seen this movie a thousand times. And every time he gets in that elevator, I wait to see the floor open up. Yeah. I always, I, I forget the gas. I always think, oh, it's going to go. Because that happens, doesn't it? And like you say, another movie, right? Yeah, and you only live twice, which is years away. Yeah. Or not, and you only live, sorry, Spy Love Me. Spy Love Me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it does happen. And that's what throws me off. I remember that. And so when I'm watching yeah. this, I keep every time I wait for the dang elevator floor to open, I get, I'm just like Bond. I get surprised by the gas every time. <laughs> if it should have a button, it would be even funnier if the button said open floor trap thing and he has to push that <laughs> and then it gasses him. <laughs> oh, we're just coming up with all kinds of ideas for the uh, for the next Blofeld. I really like this Blofeld. This this was my Blofeld when I was a kid, right? I mean, I didn't know what the heck <laughs> Donald Pleasance was when I was little. I was like, okay. And I didn't really get to see on Her Majesty's for a very long time. It just was never on you know television much or anything. Mm-hmm. And so, and as a little kid, it's, I mean, this is this is what I mean. Diamonds Are Forever is a more of a little kid's fun Bond movie compared to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, right? A little yeah. kid, a little kid watching On Her Majesty's Secret Service gets bored, falls asleep, in a lot of it. 
Um, this movie, though, doesn't make any dang sense, but it has a lot of wacky, colorful things going on and colorful characters. It kept me awake more. And so I really like this Blofeld. I give him a nine. He's wow. my favorite. He's my favorite Blofeld because he is Blofeld to me. The other guys are riffing on him in my world, in my mind. Yeah, I can. Yeah, all right. Yeah, you can see that depending which order that you you see them in. Yeah. Yeah, I saw this one yeah. first, and he established this is what Blofeld is like, and so the others just seem like odd versions. Probably why Sally Savalas is my favorite Blofeld too. Is yeah. It doesn't yeah. probably doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. All right. Now this one, there's not a lot, but what we get. The henchmen, the supporting villains. Oh, my goodness. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about the henchmen in this film. I love Wint and Kit. They are so iconic. This is the correct um, answer. They are, yeah, they, they work so well together, the pair of them. Um, the acting, um, I know looking back on it, some of it seems a bit, with the sexuality, seems a bit, uh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? They've been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it seems a bit stereotyped, um, you know, pantomime. But at the time, I mean, I've got some gay friends who, like, this was like an eye-opening moment for them seeing... Oh, I could see that. ...openly gay characters on the screen. And particularly ones who were as strong, you know, as strong as this. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, again, they, they, they the last fight scene, some of it was not so good. But some of the acting between the two, that last fight scene went... Oh, I'm going to get this the wrong way round. I can't remember. But basically... When one of them sees the other guy on fire and goes over the mm-hmm. goes over the, the railing, his partner, the look on his face is like he's devastated. Oh yes, I noticed that for sure. Yeah. Um, yes. So there's some great acting in, in, in between the two of them, um, and just every time they, you know, just from that early build up with the with with the you know the, the dentist and the scorpion, um, mm-hmm. and then everything else, um, you know, and then the whole thing in the canals in Amsterdam and stuff. Just they they just become such a sinister. They're not physically sinister, um, but they become just this sinister presence as soon as you see them sort of enter the shot. You know, something's you know somebody's going to die. Um, and they so, yeah, have they, their own music theme, and they have their own cue. Yeah, yes, that's, music cue. It's yeah. it's playful but sinister. It's excellent. Yeah, yeah. So for me, yeah, this was a seven out of ten for Went and Kid, and I'm probably being. I'm actually thinking about that now. I think actually I'm going to bump that up to an eight. So. Do that because I'm because I'm making it a nine. Okay. There, there's only one group of henchmen I like better than Winton Kid, and we get to them next time. Okay. So they're the best, but these guys are second best, which is no shame out of 25 or whatever movies. So, yeah, um, they are fantastic. They are the stars of this movie. They make this movie. It would be they do make the movie so yes, much less. <clears throat> Excuse me. This movie. I'm, hold on. Still getting over a cold from a football game trip I went to. So every time I leave the state, I get sick. It's so ridiculous. My wife is like, you can't leave anymore. Um, But no, imagine this movie without them. Yeah. Oh. It wouldn't. Yeah, it would be terrible. Right. So yeah, everything you just said, I completely agree with. Um, They're so well drawn, right? We don't spend a ton of time with them. But in the time that we do spend with them, you, you get to know them remarkably well. From everything from like the little cologne perfume bottle thing mm-hmm. to um, the way they finish each other's sentences and have that little rapport with their little jokes and stuff. 
Uh, there's you, there's so much shorthand. It's amazing that they could have done such a good job with these two characters and then totally screwed up so much else of the rest of the of the script. But there you go. I had forgotten. Again, there's things about this movie I've seen it a million times. And I still am always surprised. I keep forgetting that they kill the old lady that's the teacher. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense in retrospect because they were killing everybody that was involved in the diamonds. I know. And he says, isn't it strange how everybody who's involved with these diamonds just seems to die? I keep waiting. Here's my other question. Would somebody have killed them? I don't know. At some point, would it have been their turn? Yeah. Or are they the only ones who are supposed to walk away? Would Blofeld have, you know? Yeah. Taken them out? I don't know. Um, And the, the whole thing in Vegas with Shady Tree and the mobsters and the funeral home was, again, colorful and fun, but didn't make a whole lot of sense. I never really felt like I understood, and I've seen it a million times, what's going on there. But uh, No, I never really got that one. What is the mob? I guess the mob was like part of the in- smuggling operation, and there was the... Or were teddy- they part of the mob, or were they just part of the overall <sighs> organization? I don't know. Yeah. The Wasn't the funeral home director part of the... Yeah, he was. He was, he part, was of the, part of the deal, too, yeah. Yeah, but was that a Blofeld operation, or was it a mob operation? I don't know. This is never really clear, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well. More unanswered questions that keep popping up. I, I asked the question now, would this movie be better with Jaws or Oddjob in it? <laughs> well, you know my answer to Jaws. Uh, no, because you've got two <laughs> iconic henchmen. So That is the answer. You actually fit for. this movie, yeah. Yes. So, no. No, that's the answer I was looking for is, because Wint and Kid are so great, you don't need uh, uh, you don't need to borrow a good um, henchman from another movie. By the way, <clears throat> I mean this get- is this is one of the ones where the henchmen are actually way more effective than the main villain. Oh, I'll give you that. Um, even though I love the main villain, I I totally get what you're saying. What's funny, and I'm, I may not ever think of this again, so I got to say it now. When we get to Moonraker. That is the one movie in the entire series where the producers asked themselves the question I just asked you. And their answer was yes. <laughs> they went and brought back Jaws. I love it, right? I didn't even think about that when I made up that question like two or three episodes ago. But yeah, in 1979, they said, would this movie be better with Jaws in it? Yes. <laughs> He's in two. It's so funny. Um too bad they couldn't have they couldn't have uh, revived Odd Job for uh, Thunderball or something. Um, all right, the Bond girls, everybody's favorite category to some degree. I don't know about this movie now. I, to me, there's really four Bond girls, maybe kinda, kinda maybe sorta. If you count Bambi and Thumper, uh, yeah, um, uh, they're probably more henchmen. Which yeah, anyway. that's true. Yeah. Um, well, there's always a fine line between what makes a Bond girl versus a henchman, and it, eh, yeah, yeah. you know. But so um, hench person, yes, hench person, but. hench person, <laughs> hench cliff. Um, so I, to me, because we don't get to see much of Plenty, ironically enough, given her name, um, this movie really does turn on how you react to Jill St. John. It does, yeah. And for me, this is the biggest waste of a potentially great character. Because at the beginning of the movie, she is awesome. Yeah. She is the take charge. She's the boss. She doesn't take any guff from anybody until we get the, oh, you killed James Bond line. Um, and then from that point on, she just deteriorates into the uh, screaming bimbo. Ah, oh, in a, crap. In a bikini. In a bikini. Well, and then he says, go put something on because you're wearing a bikini. So she puts on a different bikini. <laughs> 
<laughs> and crack then, me up. She comes out a different. How, how to fi- how to fire a gun and no. re- uh, uh, yeah. I Although just... that actually worked out because she needed to jump off the rig and she right. it throws yeah, her I off know, and Bond's like, it, oh okay. It's just yeah. Uh, I, I think it's the worst <laughs> character arc of any. Character yeah, we we movie. we talked about that in the review that she starts yeah. out really compelling and interesting as a very strong female character, almost like a mob boss lady. Yeah. She is, yeah. And by the end, she's a cringing, you know. Now, part of that is that she's wily enough to know how to play her cards that I think when she gets captured by Blofeld, she, you know, kind of like plays a role to stay alive or whatever and not be, as he says, tiresome. But have you noticed that the exact same thing at that from that point on happens in The Man with the Golden Gun? Right yeah. down to the bikini? yeah. It's like she goes from an original character to a character in a movie they hadn't even made yet. Yeah, yeah. That's the weird. The difference is Mary Goodnight is annoying right from the beginning. Right from and the start. Right from the beginning. She, she never Tiffany deteriorates. Case, <laughs> Tiffany Case is really strong and interesting at the beginning. Becomes yeah. really annoying. Yeah. So, yeah. I have another theory about Tiffany Case and Jill St. John there with her red hair and the way that she acts in the second half of this movie. You know, we've we've established that the man with the golden gun was a backdoor pilot for Fantasy Island. I th- I think that this movie was a backdoor pilot for another ABC series, Heart to Heart, because she's Mrs. Stephanie Hart. Steph- she's Stephanie Powers, yeah. And Bond is uh, is is, is um, what's his name, Robert Robert Wagner or whatever, yeah. Robert Wagner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I do. I think that because that's what that's what that show was like is. He would go beat up the bad guy while she cringed in the corner and seek Jonathan, eek, you know, just exactly the same way as Jill St. John. So <laughs> that's interesting. But uh, yeah, that, that really hit me hard this time. So, all right. So we talked about Tiffany Case. There's plenty. We don't get much of plenty, ironically enough, again. We do not, no. Um, and it's a shame. Lana, uh, Lana's Woods is a, such a fascinating character to talk to. She's got some great stories. Oh, my gosh. I to spend uh, dinner with her one time, uh, a dinner with her one time in she regaled us for several hours with stories from the set. Um, oh wow! Some of which I will not repeat on air. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's 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 a great character, uh, and it would have been great to see. It would have been actually good to see. You know, the the bits that were cut out gave her character more agency. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, she's just always just going to be the butt of that. I didn't know there was a pool down there. Gag, mm-hmm. uh, and that's all when it came to go. So unfortunately, sorely sorely used misused in this movie um, had the potential to be more than the than the dressing she is I just thought of something I think that where this movie goes off the rails in terms of the Bond girls hear me out because we've talked about how this works and the formula yeah Tiffany Case should have died in the pool and Plenty should have been with him the rest of the way because it would be much more plausible for Plenty to act the way Tiffany does the rest of the movie and usually the bad girl dies and the innocent girl ends up with Bond at the end, right? This is right. like this is one of the only Bond movies where the main girl from start to finish is the same girl. Right, which they're following from the book because in the book, hell, in the book, she even goes back to England with Bond and moves in with him and he almost marries her. So, mm. Um, mm. so you know, they're keeping the, the thread of the book by using Tiffany Case all the way through. But what you just said makes... An awful lot of sense. 
Yes. It does. I, I, yes. It's the formula. Now, I'm not saying, gee, I wish these movies would be more formulaic than they already are. I appreciate when they do a variation. So to that to the extent that they tried something different, great. But it makes more logical sense and fits more with the Bond formula that Tiffany had gotten killed and paid for her crimes and and sweet little, you know, um, Plenty is the one that ends up going, eek, eek, Blofeld, don't kill me, and falls off the rig and everything. Right. She I has mean, a penchant for falling into water know, already. Tiffany's probably the first one that goes through it. Oh, no, I was going to say the first one that goes through redemption arc, but actually Pussy Galore does too. Yeah, that's true. Um, and does she make it? But, it, does, but it doesn't feel like a redemption arc. It just feels like a degeneration of her character. Right. Right. That's the thing is it, it feels like it's a different character. And yeah. we had a different character it could have been <laughs> that yeah. would have been more in character. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I That is interesting. I think if nothing else, we've, we've come up with a good little uh, concept here. I'd like to know what... If you're one of our other um, big-time Bond fans, interacts with us on social media. And if you're not, why aren't you? But if you are, I'd like to, if you guys are listening, I'd like to know what you think about that. Because every now and then, either Alan and I or both of us come up with some kind of clever thing. And I kind of want to know what people think about that. <laughs> I'm curious. So we'll see what people say when they listen to it. All right. Um, so what, what, how did you score the girls? Because I gave them three. Uh, yeah, I'll go three. And that's all three for plenty. Because... <laughs> I was going to go one for Tiffany at the beginning and then two yeah. for Plenty. So, yeah. yeah, okay, one for Tiffany, two for Plenty. Plenty had so much potential and just never got to do anything with it. And um, I liked I liked Plenty way more than Tiffany. Uh, I the, the one thing about Tiffany I did appreciate was I appreciate that she kept parading around in a bikini. That was cool. But I'm Jill St. John's just not really my type, so I wasn't that you know, on the floor over Jill St. John running around in a bikini. I'm kind of like, oh, look, Jill St. John in a bikini. Okay, cool. So if it had been Plenty O'Toole running around in a bikini, I'd been like, <laughs> interesting. Okay, let's see where this goes. All right, so yeah, I think a three is more than fair. Um, Bond allies. Well, what? We've got Felix, kind of Willard White at the end. Yeah. Um, a rat? <laughs> <laughs> I, what else is there? I mean, uh, to be honest, I gave one point for Felix and one point for Willard White because I think he's the worst Felix in the series. Yeah, he's a pretty bad Felix. I mean, he's got like no screen presence. Doesn't add much. Doesn't add anything other than talking on the radio. Doesn't really do anything positive. Willard White does a little bit more, but I don't know. The funny so, thing about the funny got, thing about they got two, two, two from me. The funny thing about Willard White, I like Jimmy Dean, and I thought it was an interesting casting choice. I never would have come up with Jimmy Dean as the rich guy, um, but it, I liked it. The, the issue I had with it is whenever it's Willard White, but it's not Willard White, it's somebody pretending to be him, he's really cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, what's uh, going on? You know. But then when it's actually Willard White, all he does is yell at people. Yeah, you notice that once it's yeah. Jimmy Dean as Willard White, he's just like, "Oh, what the hell are you doing? Go do it!" You know, he's just yelling at people the whole rest of the movie, and and so it was like, I kind of liked you better when you were on the telephone being nice, man. What the heck, man? So, <laughs> but um, no, I give the so I give, not, not being American, I had no idea who Jimmy Dean was. Other than uh, for me, Jimmy Dean was always the actor from Diamonds Are Forever, <laughs> and it I was like only. It. 
years and years later when I started coming over here on business and then moved here and I was in the supermarket and I'm like, well, why are these sausages named after the guy from the Diamonds of Forever? Uh, the Willard, so, White so- Willard White Sausages. Sausages, yeah. <laughs> Did you know, it's funny you said that because just a couple of days ago, it was probably during a football game because that would make sense, during a college football game, they ran an ad for Jimmy Dean Sausage and they had like an animated kind of-ish version you know that rotoscoped animation yeah, yeah. of him talking, and my first thought was, "Good lord, the man! How old must the man be? He still sounds and looks the same." And then I'm like, "Oh wait, they had to have gone and gotten some old footage and some old audio, and right. cleaned it up, covered it up with animation to make it seem like he's saying it now, but he was actually saying it probably in 1975 or something." So because he had to be 100 years old now, right? If he's, I'm sure he's dead. I'm sure he's dead. But um, but yeah, I. Uh, that I I see because <laughs> when I saw Diamonds Are Forever, I'm like, why is the sausage guy living in Las Vegas and pretending to be a millionaire? That didn't make any sense to me. It's so funny. <laughs> we were seeing it from the opposite from the yeah. opposite side. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm like Jimmy Dean. What's he doing as a Bond guy? But all right, so Bond allies. There just weren't that many. Even poor old Q doesn't get to do a whole lot other than rob a casino. A little grand larceny going on there, Q. No problem. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. That's all I'm going I'm to say here. Yeah. Um, but he uh, in 2010, by the way. Yeah, I figured that's longer than I thought he might have lasted. Yeah. So, um, there's not a, not a lot of great uh, allies going on here. So, what did you score the allies? I'm going to say three, but that's all three are for Willard White, just because I think he was interesting at the end, <laughs> even though he's yelling, okay. screaming at everybody. All right. What did you say? I don't. I, I didn't catch it. Two, two. All right. Yeah. Oh, uh, one was for the rat. There you go. <laughs> I, I count the rat as uh, as one of the ally. It's a, it's a sad sad fact that in this movie you kind of have to count the rat as an ally because that's how bad <laughs> bad off he is. All right. Now I know this is one <clears throat> that you're going to really enjoy, and I'm not so much. The vehicles of this Bond film. Actually, not so much. Like I said, I fell in love with the Mustang. First time I saw it. Um, always, I don't know why I've always wanted one of those Mac 1 Mustangs. Um, probably completely impractical to drive. Um, and it's not really a standard Mustang. I've had a couple of Mustangs, but not a Mac 1. Um, but I don't know. I still love that shape and color um, of that Mustang. Um, but that's, that's about it. I mean, you've got the kooky uh, moon buggy. Yeah. Yep. You've got the little Honda ATVs, which, you know, are fun. Mm. Three wheelers. Good way to get um, killed. Yeah. Well, I don't make them anymore. Um, but that's about it, isn't it? Um, yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I gave it six, and that's pretty much just for the Mustang. Um, yeah. It's, uh, which, of course, we, you saw at the Peterson Museum because it's in its unrestored state, stuck in the corner. Well, not anymore because the, 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 uh, the exhibit's finished. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm on record as not being a big Ford guy. I don't like Mustangs that much. That's a better one, I will say. Not long after that one, they got really bad for about 20 years and only got good again just recently. And by yeah. recently, I mean the last 10 years or so, 10 or 15 years. Um, so, yeah, it's it's okay. Not one of my favorite cars. I'll give it a four just because it's kind of cool and because the space buggy reminds me of the death probe from uh, Six Million Dollar Man. So <laughs> I'll give him a four for that. There you go. Gadgets. So, again, unanswered oh. questions. When he steals the moon buggy, why do the astronauts move in slow motion? Oh, that's – I've I got something <laughs> to say. That comes up. That comes up. Um, oh, okay. You've got that in your uh, – I've got that later, yes. We'll hold off okay. on that. All right. 
Gad- hold that thought. Hold that thought. Mm-hmm. Bo- Bond gadgets. I mean, you mentioned one before we started that I'd forgotten even existed. The the the, the rope thing. So, I mean, other than his little mouse trap thing in his suit jacket that gets the guy's hand. And by the way, I love the villain with the giant sideburns. Yeah, that's a that's a henchman we left off. But there's the henchman whose sideburns are like a character in the movie by themselves. Those are evil sideburns. Good lord, that dude. He needs to play like a, an English Bobby or something. He needs that hat, you know what I mean? He just looked like he should be standing <laughs> he's a, on a street. He's a well-known English character. I, I say I, well-known. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Right. But he, he's an English character actor you see in lots of movies and TV yeah. shows from the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember him from yeah. stuff for sure. Um, okay, so what other gadgets are we forgetting then? So there's the... Balloon for walking on water, which he uses at the end to get to the oil rig. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and the main one for me is the Piton gun and rope sort of concealed in the in the, in the the dinner jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about it, isn't it? I think. And by the way, there is no way I would trust a little gun shooting darts into the side of a concrete building to support my weight like 50 stories up. I just would be like, nope, going to have to find another way in. Yeah. Not hanging, <laughs> not hanging from that rope over the drop. No. <laughs> you, you think Q's not like capable of uh making something infallible? I mean, that just no. That was not going to happen. But uh no, yeah, I think so, that's so, probably so the it. gadgets the gadgets for me got two, two and that's just for the piton gun. The other two are just Two is the correct answer. Two okay. is the correct answer. Um, I guess there's the thing in the oil pipe, but that's not really his. That oh, like, yeah, little the, sparky the, thing uh, with the yeah, yeah so. the the welding thing, yeah. Yeah, man, it wasn't even his. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the all right, we are to the pre-credit sequence, which is the mud bath battle. I have a lot to say about this. Oh, here we go. Fire off, fire away. So you touched on it earlier that you felt that the pre-credit sequence was a nod to the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, that he was angry and he's trying to find out who killed Tracy. You'd think. I have always felt that from 1971 until 2022. Mm. That's what I thought. And then I was heard somebody say the other, the other, probably three weeks ago, the whole purpose of that credit sequence, pre-credit sequence, is not to follow on from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It's to make you forget on a Majesty's Secret Service, it actually follows on directly from the end of You Only Did Twice, and it ignores On a Majesty. And if you think about it, the first scene in this pre-credit sequence takes place in Japan, huh? where he goes after somebody and says, "Where's Blofeld?" Oh, he does. Yes. And yes. And the guy's Cairo, and then it goes. Mm-hmm. The, at no point in that pre-credit sequence does he mention Tracy or Blofeld having killed his wife. He's just looking for Blofeld, right. which he could very feasibly be doing after the end of You Only Live Twice. Right. Yeah. And then if you think yeah. about it in those terms, the remarks that Money Penny make about bring me back a diamond ring is not so callous because he's never been married and never lost his wife. The remark that M says about I'm glad we can get some decent work out of you now is not so callous because he's just come back from just hunting Blofeld. They comp- if you think about the fact that they completely ignore everything that happened in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, this opening sequence is designed to move you from You Only Live Twice to Diamonds Are Forever and not think about On a Majesty's Secret Service. Well, you know, that tracks in the sense that we've always said On Her Majesty's is kind of in its own universe. Sort of. Well, they, they reference it a lot later on, but at this particular moment in time, right, right. they were going for, let's pretend On Her Majesty's didn't exist, never yeah. happened. Right. 
it's still Sean Connery. We're, we're mm. revisiting the Goldfinger mm -hmm. formula. So let's set something up that is actually a direct follow-on from You Only Live Twice into the beginning sold. of this. And I was like, mind I'm blown. Dude, I'm sold. I'm buying that. All right. If you tell me that it was Jared that came up with that. No, it wasn't. It was. I give up on life. All right. It wasn't no, Jared. Was okay. I can continue. <laughs> I can continue. <laughs> I'm just teasing Jared, but no, he's Jared totally could have come up with that. But I, no. I wish I could remember who it was. Ah, what podcast it was. I was listening to that said it, and it was. I was no, I was listening to a podcast while I was out for a walk, and I like stopped, and I'm like, oh my god, that makes yeah. total sense. Well, now I want to know what people think about that too. So, including Jared. So yeah, if you guys are listening, <laughs> I'm kind of curious what you think because no, I'm I'm totally buying that. That 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 absolutely works. And like I say, I mean, like you said, at that time, because later on they do try to incorporate Honor Majesties into the into the canon a little bit and say, oh, he did have a wife that died. But honestly, you know, the way they filmed it and the way that everybody was presented in it, including Blofeld, we've talked about that before, it didn't fit with the existing no. series up to that point, which is not a bad thing necessarily. That's a good thing in some ways, but it's, it's his own thing. So that makes sense. Yeah, okay. But it's always worried me that this one seemed very callous and didn't fit yes. with it, and, and it was well, such an abrupt tonal shift. Tonal shift, but, yes. But if you take that out, it is right. not an abrupt tonal no. shift. No. Because he's, what he's doing is just hunting Blofeld just, because Blofeld got away. Yeah, he's just obsessed with tracking the dude that got away. I, yeah. I was going to say kind of that, which is that it really insulted the previous movie by taking what was a very serious situation and turning it into a gag with mud, you know. But the other yeah. thing I was going to say about it is, and this is a problem I have throughout the movie, but especially in the opening sequence, is when Bond needs to take somebody out in this movie, they go down really, really easily. He drops some mud on that dude, and the dude promptly dies. Yeah. I'm like, why did he die? Other, uh, other unanswered question. Why would the guy have a gun in the mud bath? In the mud, yeah. Because he wasn't expecting Bond to turn up. He was having a medical procedure. Why did right. he take a gun in the mud bath with him? And why does he die? <laughs> why does he die, yeah. He just gets some mud dropped on his head. I mean... Which, by the, the way, was mashed potato. I didn't know if you know that. That was oh, a bath full of dyed mashed potato. That's the one you told me it got worse and worse, right? It was getting yeah, really yeah. bad. Yeah, right, got congealed and... Yeah. And, and which is terrible because did you notice at the he pulls the guy's head up out of it and then lets him go back down in it and you can see it going in his nostrils and everything. I'm like in his nose. Oh <laughs> no, God. No, no, no. Oh, that was the that was the scariest part of the movie to me was thinking what that actor was going through lying in that green sludge or whatever. But yeah, <laughs> oh, that was bad. All right. So um, uh, I originally scored this as well because I thought it was a complete insult to One of Majesty's Secret Service. Mm -hmm. But when I actually rethought about it from that different perspective, I give it sort of a four because I think it sort of works as a direct follow-on from You Only Live Twice. I can live with that. Four sounds good to me too. I go with four. Okay. Um, all right. The credit sequence or title sequence, let's go ahead and tell <laughs> – the audience that we were talking about this before we started recording and we couldn't remember what it was we're like alan alan's like well that says a lot doesn't it it does say a lot <laughs> because we're like what i remember the music obviously got a very memorable song i like the song i do i think it's a really cool song uh and they use that kind of tinkling ding, 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 you know all the way through yeah, the movie the and everything thing where he can make an inanimate sound of an inanimate object the diamonds oh, yeah. and stuff yeah oh yeah. yeah he's genius and um and I love when they incorporate stuff like that throughout one of the Bond movies. That's, they do that a lot, and it's always great. 
but the 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 the, the visuals are just like parts of women wearing jewelry. Yeah, and then. Um, and stroking the diamond like they're gathered around it, petting on it like it's a big dog or something. Yeah. I mean, uh. for me, the, I think the only really memorable part of the part is, is the initial segue from the, the cat with the diamond's collar, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, focusing in on that into, in, into the opening sequence. And after, anything after that, yeah, it's just generic Bond, it, you know. Now, I'll say uh, this. It's not actively horrible like no some of the it's little not bit actively offensive or anything like it's just like like the ones with neon and stuff in the 80s those are terrible yeah yeah it's just totally nothing so i gave it a three yeah. that's exactly what i gave it to there you go you and i are pretty much in tune on this movie it's interesting yeah yeah except for a couple of specific things but we have our reasons so it's cool yeah theme song diamonds are forever We'll get a copyright hit if I sing it. <laughs> I don't think Shirley Bassey's got anything to worry about. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, what having, do you think? having just seen her perform this on the Amazon Prime, uh, oh yeah, version of the 60th anniversary concert when she came out and belted this out at age 85, and it was like, wow. Good yeah. gosh. Hey, and by the way, that reminds me. Have you you've watched the uh, the special on the music? Yeah. That's pretty cool, too. I enjoyed that a lot. That's very good. That's good, too. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I actually rate this more than Goldfinger from as a Shirley Bassey song. I I really, Hmm. um, this is one of my, certainly in my top five, and sometimes it's higher, you know, gets closer to the top, depending on on my mood. But, yeah, this is one of the classic opening themes for me. Okay. What do you put it? um, So I give it a nine. Nine. Wow. I didn't expect that. Cool. Yeah, no, I... I like the story that when it was put together and the lyrics were written, was it Broccoli? That's like, you can't say that. He was totally good. It was was Saltzman. I was like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. They had to talk him into it or something. He thought it was... No, they didn't talk him into it. He he just stormed out of the office and they just went and did it anyway. Went and did it anyway, yeah. Well, it worked. Yeah, he thought it was filthy. He thought it was so dirty. Yeah, Yeah. pornographic, yeah. Nobody nobody thinks that about it now. Um, (laughs) But for me, it's just above mid mid range and so i gave it a six okay it's not in my Good top one, but okay <laughs> it's not in my top five or ten or anything but it's not very far down either it's probably like if i were just guess it's probably around like number 11 or something so it's fine i mean it's for fine. me one of the reasons is that you only have to hear that opening chord and you immediately know what it is oh sure along and, you know, there's yeah. no doubt yeah there's no doubt well what about the overall music score for this movie so the overall music um, it's John Barry. Love John Barry stuff. We just talked about the fact, you know, he has that thing where he can make, in, uh, it, mm-hmm. you know, inanimate objects sound, give them a sound that's instantly recognizable. That's, that's what it is. Um, and here he does it with diamonds. Uh, I, I read somewhere he worked out how many facets a diamond has, and that's how many chords or something. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Um, so yeah, that's it's, great. it's great. But I don't. It's not a classic Barry. I mean, there's that. There's that. We talked about the fact that you know. Went and Kid have their own cue, stuff like that. But there's, other than that, there's nothing that really stands out for me on this. There's no particular cues or anything other than the main theme and the, um, the Went and Kid one that stand out. So mm-hmm. I gave it a seven. It's probably my lowest scoring of the of the John Barry scores. I gave it a seven, and I'm, I noted it's crazy how close we are on these. I noted that it was mainly for the Went and Kid music because mm-hmm. that's even more ever present than the other themes that run through it right it's the that that is so good it's um it 
you know they're around when you start hearing that little, it's kind of a sneaky yeah. music, it's kind of a menacing music, it's kind of a playful music. It's amazing that he can get so many emotions and feelings in just a few notes. Yeah. yeah. Just a, just the way you arrange them, you curve them, you do, you know, it's just that, you know, that, kind of, that it's like, dang, how did he come up with that? I don't know. Well, yeah, so we both agreed on that. All right, we'd say here we talk about what's aged the best and what's aged the worst in this movie. And you can have more than one thing if you want to, but what do you think has aged the best? In other words, what, what in this movie you look at today and you go, that's held up really darn well. That's, that's pretty impressive that they've, that they, you know, that's still, that still holds up. That's a good question. And here's how I'm struggling because I don't have my notes from what I wrote originally. <laughs> and I, don't have, I don't have a score to prompt me. Um, what aged the best? It's hard on this movie because, like I said, this is a kind of a gritty early 70s movie that looks like a gritty early 70s movie. Do you know why I actually think what aged the best is what I talked about earlier? And it's, it's the, look, the look, at Vegas, uh, look at 1970s Vegas. Mm-hmm. That's um, what I have. That's what I have. We're right on Cinco, Cinco Back. Yeah. yeah it is, it's that time capsule, which is a weird thing to say about what aged the best is the time capsule. Yeah. No, aspect but of the movie. I agree. But I think it is. I think it's the thing that stands up is, is that look at early 70s Vegas, which is now a completely different town, completely different city. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think they did a good job. And I, I like the fact it wasn't just the Vegas, it wasn't just Fremont Street and the Nugget and all the neon. You got those shots of the edge of the strip where there was like a hotel and there was just desert around it. And then they're driving out and they're only just going like a couple of blocks away from the end of the strip and they're out in the scrub and the brush. Right. And yeah. Yeah, uh, you really get the idea that this is just a you know a, a casinos in the middle of the desert type thing, which you don't get anymore. It's a major city now, so you know with suburbs and all that stuff, which you don't get there. So, mm. yeah, I I really like that that sort of time capsule aspect of the movie. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly what I had. Yeah, um, there are other things too, but uh, all right. <laughs> Besides Sean Connery in this movie, <laughs> you know where I'm going here, right? Besides Sean Connery. What has aged the worst in this movie? Well, let's put aside Sean's physique, Sean's two gay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he looks so totally usual, different. He looks totally usual, different in this movie. The usual misogyny um, aspects. Yeah. Um, it's got to be the special effects. I mean, the, the special effects of the. I mean, you said as a kid, oh, the laser destroying the missiles on the ground. Oh, right, right. right. You know, yes. uh, yeah. It was. It, it's probably cool when you're twelve or thirteen, but or whatever. But it just um, you look at it now, particularly looking at it on a big, you know, a big high def screen or whatever. Even exactly. On your iPad, it's like it's so corny. You know, all that budget went for paying Sean Connery. They clearly didn't use it <laughs> for the special effects. No. And for a, for a, for a series that is so grounded in practical effects and model work, it it's just jarring with the rest of the series and what they've done previously too in terms of special effects. That I think that doesn't help it. It's not like it was like oh that was what special effects at the time looked like and it just didn't age. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, no, even compared to what was being done at the time, it was cheap and shoddy. That's right. So. I was going to say, you know, Alan, special effects in this movie weren't great. Those kids got a heck of a scholarship up there at that school. <laughs> <laughs> so there's where your money is. It's, you know, they say you don't want to have your money up on the screen. This movie had its money up at a school somewhere. That's, yeah. I think you hit the, hit the, hit the nail on the head. Um, the movie, the money was not on the screen other than, other than Connery. And by the way, this movie encapsulates that awkward middle period for Sean Connery. Think about it. Connery in the early 60s, mid-60s was awesome. He was young, had his hair, he was athletic, looked cool, 
right? He could have been Batman or something. He was awesome. Connery, I would argue, starting in 77 with A Bridge Too Far when he's the general. From then on, he's the older statesman, Connery, yeah. and he fits that role really well. But it's that early 70s Connery where he's in that transition period and he's need, he's not completely either one and he's like a third person and it's not good. It's just very awkward. Bless his heart, you know. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. So I'm yeah. trying to think when was when was the man who would be king. I'm going to have to look that up. But. Yeah, that, yeah, I don't remember. It's somewhere in the 70s, isn't it? I feel like it's early, mid-70s. It might be right during this period, but he wasn't trying to look like 75. Sean. Yeah, so he was. That okay. was right in between this and a bridge too far. Because I think in yeah. a bridge too far, he looks really cool. He looks good yeah. again. He's, he's yeah. The money would be king. He's really cool. So yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's probably that that little window. Yeah. Yeah, window when he's transitioning from being the hero to the mentor figure type. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. For for what's age the worst? Um, like I said, other than Sean. I think I guess we have to say some of the Winton kid stuff. You yeah. know, if you if you did that today, you could still do it, but you just have to do it a little differently. You know what I mean? You you couldn't be so yeah, some of the some of the stereotyping is, is yeah 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 yeah. You you could still do something like that, but you'd have to do it in a more of a. I don't mean in like a. I don't know what I mean exactly. I just mean do it in a way that's not like actively offensive to people, right? To to some yeah, people, yeah. and that would be fair. Um, but I do like the idea that I, I like the idea that some folks kind of look at them and think back then that that was kind of like a cool thing because they are really cool characters. And even though yeah, they I mean, are, I mean, just seeing that representation on screen, I know. That, yeah, know, um, exactly. It's very important to a lot of people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, because they're again, because what you said a while ago, they, they're cartoons part of the time, but part of the time they're pretty heavy, scary, intimidating dudes, and part of the time they're kind of like affectionate, you know. Yeah, there's a they, lot they more come, depth they come to them. across as a genuine couple at times. Yes, so it's remarkable. Yeah, yeah give them credit. Okay, all right, all right. Our, one of our favorite categories, the double taking pigeon. I guess we know what's going to win this category when we get to Moonraker. The double taking okay. pigeon most cringeworthy moment award. To to what or whom? What do you give your most cringeworthy moment award? And then mine's I already. Think he's got, mine's I think it's going to be t- t- Tiffany falling off the back of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with a machine gun. With a machine gun. Yeah, just firing in the air and falling yeah. the back of that. Yeah. Oh, it's like, God. really? Seriously? Yeah. All right. Mine um, is... I, I, actually, it's either that or the Blofeld in Dragon. Not because Blofeld oh. in Dragon got nothing against people <laughs> being in Dragon. But it makes absolutely no sense story-wise. No, sense at all. No, it doesn't. Just and it makes put... no sense from a practical point. Why was he trying... If he's been hidden away for three years and nobody's seen him, why does he feel the need to be in disguise? But the only thing that I... I and why does Te- one? Why does Tiffany? We said this earlier. Why does Tiffany recognize when she's not met him? And two, why does she recognize him when he's in drag? Yeah. <laughs> um, the good. only thing explanation I can come up with that one is at some point Blofeld. Um, sorry, at some point Bond said something about the man upstairs with the white cat, and she saw this person walking through with a white cat in his arms. In their arms. Yeah. I I think we kind of just assumed that. Yeah, I, I think that may be why it's never grabbed me and made me go, "Hey, what's going on?" Is I just say, "Oh, the cat," so she just must recognize. Yeah, I think that's it. It's another one of those things where there's like a scene. They need another scene. Yeah, but again, why the need to dress in drag is like I don't get it. Yeah, it's pretty strange. So, yeah, I had to give this to the slow motion astronauts. That, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Every time <laughs> that I see that, I go. 
what the hell are they doing? <laughs> I just, I like that they're moving in slow motion before Bond runs out there because I'm like, okay, I, that's plausible that they're simulating or something, right? They're, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. They're moving like they would on the moon or something, so they're just practicing. Okay. But when they're actually trying to stop an intruder, they're still moving like <laughs> <laughs> And he runs past them easily. And it'd be funny. There'd be like the guards come out there and go, why didn't you stop him? I couldn't catch him. Why not? Because I'm, I'm on the moon. <laughs> what are you supposed to say to that, right? I'm, I'm this, don't you see yeah. this spacesuit? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, Actually, all right. there's, an, there's another Uh-oh. really cringe-worthy, but it, it's one of those ones, once you know it's there, you can't unsee it thing. Yeah. Is the moon buggy actually loses a wheel at one point, and it bounces through the frame. <laughs> and then in the next shot, it's got all four wheels on, oh, and it's carrying no. on down it's road. got automatic yeah. wheel replacement technology. That's what yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty cool, man. <laughs> Formula One needs that. They'll have it soon, I'm sure. All right, best Bond moment, and I got to be honest with you, I struggled mightily <laughs> to find the best Bond moment in this movie because, to me, Bond doesn't do a whole lot in this movie. He just, I mean, he's kind of there. It's almost like Goldfinger again, where he's kind of there as stuff happens, and he kind of ticks off the villain a few times and helps make things happen, but he doesn't really, he's not Superman in this movie. He just kind of like bumbles his way through things and things happen around him a lot of the time. So For me, it's actually the one things when he does, for me, the one time where he really does take the initiative is in that confrontation with the two Blofelds when he kicks the cat. Yeah. As a way to figure out which is the right yeah. Blofeld. And then he uses the piton gun kill. Turns out it's the wrong Blofeld, but mm-hmm. um, right idea, wrong pussy. Right. Um, but for me, that that's, that's Bond using an initiative, seeing an opportunity, taking the opportunity and going with it. So for me, that's that's my coolest Bond moment in this movie. Yeah, I thought uh, about... And the other one that you've, you've alluded to several times is... The coolness of coming out of that drainage thing, saying he'd just been out walking, walking. his rat. Uh, that's mine. With yeah. the rat. Sorry, did the, I steal yours? Yeah, that's yeah. mine. The rat with the rat in the pipe, like his little buddy, his ally, who's already yeah. been. I've already given him a credit as a Bond ally in this movie, <laughs> so I can do that. Yeah, him and the rat. But that just says a lot about this movie. That my my favorite Bond moment <laughs> was with the rat in the pipe. So. Bond does spend a lot of time in these movies in pipes, by the way. That's an interesting, uh, you know, we, we all know there's snow skiing and helicopters and underwater and everything, but there's a surprising amount of pipes <laughs> between this and uh, um, The Living Daylights and uh, The World Is Not Enough. <laughs> pipes keep popping up here and there in these movies. It's really weird. Um, all right. Are we to the overall rating? Okay. So... What's your subjective score? What would you have given this just as an overall? Yeah. On a scale of 1 to 10, do you rate this a 1, like License to Kill? <laughs> just, to make, just to make Jared mad. Or a 10, like You Only Live Twice? Uh-huh. Maybe. What would you, what, what would you rate it? I gave this one a 4. Okay. I could, have, I could have gone lower. When I was younger, I would have gone higher. I kind of settled in the middle on four, mostly because of the nostalgia of my feeling of it from a childhood and forgetting to see Vegas around the same time as my book. And I really like Willard White, except when he starts screaming at people. And I really like Winton Kidd. 
So each of those gets one, and they add them all together, and you got a four. Okay. So I almost so deducted I, a point for his pink tie. <laughs> that tie almost cost a point from this movie, man. I'll tell you right now. Okay, go ahead. Floor is yours. So I was the same. I'm a four. Wow. Um, on the av- average math score, you gave it a 4.92, averaging out all your scores. 4.92. Okay. And I came out as a 4.5. So we were yeah. there in the ballpark. So, yeah. yeah, I think that the difference was that I liked the Blofeld better than you did. That's pretty much the yeah. main difference between us. Everything yeah. else was almost exactly the same. Pretty much, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's really remarkable. Okay, so yeah, I I, I'm, I think that's a new feature I'm going to add in now is uh, listeners, especially our listeners on Twitter and so forth, <coughs> let us know kind of what you rated it. And if you have any thoughts as to why, hit hit, hit us up at On Her Majesty's Secret Pot at, at O-H- MS Pod, right? <laughs> or Magic Secret Podcast well on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that's easy to remember. And then, uh, yeah, let us know. I'm just curious. So, all right. Uh, let's see. Any final thoughts, Alan, before we wrap up for tonight? I don't think so. Uh, it was interesting revisiting this. Like I said, it's not one I. The only time I ever watch this is when I'm doing it, mm-hmm. a Bond rewatch marathon. It's not one I throw on occasionally. And I, I sort of have, oh, it can't be as bad as I remember it. And then I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but it has its high points. Um, it has its moments, um, good and bad. So yeah, it's uh, you know it's one I enjoy the beginning of, and then as it gets further on, we just. I, it's funny actually. Just talk literally as I'm talking. It's like oh, we never even talked about Peter Franks, and we never talked about this, and we never talked about that. Mm-hmm. It's. I think it's like you said. It's one you watch, and afterwards it's like almost instantly forgettable, other than yeah. specific things like Winton Kidd and the theme tune and the red Mustang and the space laser. And that's pretty much it. Pretty so, much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, that's it. It's, it's a movie that, um, I, this, this is the movie that I think I had a bigger surprise reaction to when I bought the DVD set. I bought the DVD box sets, the four boxes when they came out back in like 2006. One, my wife gave me one and I bought the others, whatever. And that was the first time I'd ever really sat down and watched all the Bond movies in order. That was when I really became like a Bond super fan as, compar- as opposed to just a casual viewer, right, that had always watched them, was when I sat down and watched them all the way through start to finish. And the thing that I remember, the, 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 one of the most surprising moments for me when I did that was how much less I liked this movie than I thought I was going to. Because I mm-hmm. had such fond memories from seeing it on ABC, and I thought, oh, I'm going to see it without commercials now. This was the first time I'd ever seen it without commercials when I watched it on DVD. I'm going to see it without commercials. They're not going to have edited stuff out. And I watched it, and I was like, oh, wow, that was just not <laughs> not <laughs> what I was expecting. That was not, you know. Because I'd seen people, you know, by that point on social media, I'd seen people saying it wasn't very good. And I'm like, y'all are crazy. Y'all are crazy. This movie's great. And I watched it, and I'm like, yeah, it, it kind of sucks. So it was very disappointing in that way. And I, I had to just describe it to, like I said, to nostalgia for the, the childhood thing. So, yep. all right. Well, next time we say goodbye to Sean Connery, this time for good, unless we do, obviously, on uh, Never Say Never Again. <laughs> and we welcome in Sir Raj, not Roger Bennett, Roger Moore. And we go down to the bayou, Alan. Yeah, we do indeed. We're going down there with Billy Bob. Billy Bob will get him. <laughs> Billy Bob will get him, Alan. Live and let die. I'm looking forward coming. to that one. I'm Coming up next. Yes. All right. 
This has been on Amazing Secret Podcast. Alan, take it easy. We appreciate it. Cheers. See you, everybody. Bye. James Bond will return. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.